the big um, events in your career was um, the Zodiac, uh, making the arrest of the Zodiac killer. And one of the things we don't want to confuse with, New York had its own sort of copycat Zodiac, right? It, yes. it has nothing to do with the California Zodiac killer. But the only thing that it had to do with it is that he, that he was inspired by him. Okay. And it was a copycat, you know. Because some people thought that, because recently something came up about the California Zodiac killer. And yeah, they, it looks like they might have broke the code. Yes. Uh, after like 50 years. I, I, I looked into it earlier this week. It's interesting. But you're still working the case. Just You're not getting paid. I'm still working the case. <laughs> I'm not getting paid. You're yeah, still on yeah. the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so what, what was going on with the New York copycat case, uh, it started in 1990. And uh, he was shooting people in the 75 precinct and the adjacent 102 and the adjacent 104 precinct. But in those days, uh, those precincts, like, you know, they were very, very busy. And nobody would have uh, put those unsolved shootings together if he didn't start communicating with the press. You know, he started writing letters to the uh, New York Post, 60 Minutes, and uh, he's taking credit for, for, for shootings. Right. And uh, sure enough, uh, they put the uh, cases together that he's taking credit for in his writings. And they are, in fact, um, similar because the bullets, he would brag in the letters, uh, there's no lands and no grooves in the bullets. So when they started looking at the evidence of the shooting victims that he took credit for, they realized there were no lands and no grooves uh, in those bullets. Let's just um, stop for a second, tell our audience what lands and grooves are, because I don't think they all know that. So when a, a bullet is fired through the barrel of a gun, uh, when they design these, these guns um, and the barrels, they, I don't know what the, what the they process it. I don't know what it's, the, it's, the a, it's a machine processing that explained right. to me it puts a spin on the bullet, much like when you throw a football, you put a spin on the football, right? Right. And each gun has the unique markings. Right. So when a bullet travels through the barrel, it leaves those unique markings and it can be compared to other bullets from that same gun and matched, right. as opposed to being compared to bullets from a different gun and they're not going to match. Right. It's like a fingerprint. So he was, he was uh, bragging in his letters that there was no lands and no grooves. He thought that we couldn't match it. But when you speak to these uh, ballistics experts, yeah, the lands and grooves helps matching it, and they can be matched. But there's other nicks and, and markings inside the barrels that when a bullet goes through the barrel, even though it's not spinning properly, it's going to leave a nick or, or, or another right. bullet. So he thought we couldn't match it. When we subsequently did solve it, we were able to match the guns that we recovered from his apartment to the crime scenes. You know, you know Chief, there's, there's a weird... Um profession uh a ballistics expert those guys truly truly love guns in an unhealthy way <laughs> yeah. yeah but i mean i used to go up to the uh, ballistics lab to watch them compare yeah i mean they're dedicated souls oh they, no uh, they're, they're yeah, yeah, i'm just yeah. saying they love yeah, no, I know. Yeah. guns I, I meant that to be semi yeah no i, I know yeah yeah you know, but they, they they live guns and uh yeah you know they can tell you uh the the, the, uh, the technology is unbelievable. They can tell you from, from looking at the bullet and put it under the microscope. Yeah, that's a Smith and Wesson, uh, you know, Model Two or whatever it is. They know it's not a Colt. They know it's not an H and H and M or a Richardson. They can narrow it down to the to the make and model. You know, sometimes. 
it's, it's very important. And to our so, listeners also, there's uh, a few other ways. Um, if a, if a, a gun is a semi-automatic, it spits out the shell and the markings on the side of the casing are you also unique to that firearm, as is the um, the, the, the hit. firing pin, which mm-hmm. leaves a unique mark also on the uh, on the casing. And so those are two other ways that the casing. And then there's a there's a database called Brass Catcher, right? Yep. Yep. That compares the brass all over the city, different shootings, and they find out, voila, the same gun is being used in a bunch of shootings. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I experienced that. You know, I, I had uh, a couple of shootings in, in the 7.5 that were matched to bullets in the 7.3, the 4.2, the, all over the city, you know. Uh, and uh, now, so let's say it's an unsolved case that you have. Now you take a look at the cases that the other precincts have on it. And they might have a nickname. They might have a description. They might have something more, more that you have. Right. So you put it all together, you know, and you, you help further the cause. You know? Yeah. And I, you know, I think like in the past, uh, there was none of those like sort of comparisons because, pe- as you say, people weren't talking to each other. Uh, I don't know when, what year Brass Catcher came out. I don't think it was. Uh, it's, it's a relatively new technology. Yeah, I think it, I think it would be the later nineties or the early two thousands. Right. Yeah. So back in before all of these. Probably the late nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and then you know another technological advance, and we won't get deeply into it as far as investigations, is the DD five system, which allows you to search complaint uh, complaint follow ups or detectives investigations citywide, right? So if yes. you have uh, the name, well, Pito, how many Pitos have you known in your career? Millions of them, right? Millions. But if that name comes up in the 7.5 and then it comes up in the 105, it comes up in the 2.8, comes up in the 3.2, hey, we, we may have the same perp doing this crime, right? Exactly. That, that searchable database now is invaluable. Uh, there's so many things, like even a complaint report. And now they expand into like a booklet. But when I was young, I remember they started adding tattoos uh, phone numbers that the individual called, beeper numbers that they were called back then, beepers. You know, when I, Chief, when I was a young cop, I never understood, like, oh, why you, Why do they want all these damn, they want the guy to make three phone calls? First of all, they're kicking your ass out of the station house in two hours. Yeah, I don't yeah. got the time to let this guy make three phone calls, right? But then, well, you know, you become an investigator, you go, oh, shit, that's why. Yes, yeah. You know, these are the calls, this is where he's laying his head, you know? If he's a drug dealer, he's going to call his partner, number one. Right. Then his mother, number two, and maybe his girlfriend, number three. But, you know, he's going to call. Somebody's got to let him know, you know, you know, I, I got arrested. They, they, they seized the guns. They seized the drugs. Right, right. Yeah. Well, all the, the other databases, the DJS report, uh, when they go down, when they get arrested, and then a civilian interviews them and say, oh, we know you gave this address to the police, but what, what's your yes. real? Yeah, yeah. But uh, they give the real shit to that. Or I, um, a patient in a hospital, they're going to give their real information because they want to know what's... Right, right, right. That's so, funny. That's funny, yeah. Right, but those databases, like, are invaluable. We didn't always have access to that stuff, you know? I remember one time um, there was a guy, uh, he was involved in, in a homicide, and he had a nameplate, and his nickname was Homicide. You know, I guess he did a prior homicide. So he was working in a shoe store, and... Uh, He's, he's selling shoes, 
and he's got his homicide plate number. So one of my partners says, oh, can you imagine, you know, you're trying on your, your kids' sneakers, those sneakers? Oh, homicide. Do you have them in size three? You know, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, yeah, that's the way it you is. Make, you, know? you can't make that shit up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you've so. got... Uh, the Zodiac guy, how many shootings or murders did, did he do? He shot nine and he killed three. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, like I said, he connected those shootings uh, to him by, by the letters. And for six years, you know, we, we, we uh, hunted him and searched him. And uh, uh, finally, a lucky break, he gets involved in a domestic incident with his sister who was in the back bedroom of the apartment they lived on Pickin Avenue with uh, her boyfriend. And he didn't approve of the boyfriend. Boyfriend was a drug dealer. He, he didn't like drug dealers. So he ends up uh, shooting his sister in the rear end in a dispute and barricading the, the boyfriend barricaded himself in the back bedroom. So the sister is out in the hallway bleeding from the rear end. Neighbors call the police. Police respond. And next thing you know, they're being fired upon from every window in the apartment. The front of the house, the back of the house, because there's cops are responding, they're surrounding the place. And this guy's got like seven, they, they didn't know what it was. They thought it was seven guns or something like that lined up at each window. And he would, you know, run from window to window, firing shots at the cops. So I was a hostage negotiator at the time. And I had just become a, a negotiator. And I responded to the scene as a negotiator because he had the boyfriend hostage. And uh, it was a 100-day degree day. It was hot as unbelievable. They set me up with the ceramic vest, the helmet, oh, good. the hostage negotiation, windbreaker. I must have lost 20 pounds that day, you know, sweating. <laughs> but um, initially, we, we set, they set up a barrier in front of the uh, building, and I've got the loudspeaker, and I'm trying to engage him in conversation. He's not really responding. He come to the window, point uh, where I thought it was a rifle uh, at me for a couple of times, but uh, he didn't shoot, and he didn't really communicate. So then we were able to work our ways in, into the apartment building uh, and we go up to outside his door. And after about three hours of me trying to, uh, I think the ESU guys wanted to uh, collar me more than they wanted to collar uh, the shooter because I was saying the same thing. So I was just trying to get the guy to talk, you know, any, any, uh, you know, uh, enough blood has been shed. We want him. So finally he started talking to me through the door and uh, he says, okay, uh, I'll, I'll surrender. So I'm taking directions from the emergency service guys and they had people on the roof. Yeah. And they said, listen, we're going to lower a bucket down to the window of the apartment. Tell him to put all the guns uh, that he has and all the, uh, the ammunition that he has in the bucket. So they do that. They lower the bucket down about three times. Yeah. They're putting up pipes and wood <laughs> and bullets. And... So now he comes to the door and he says, okay, I, I got rid of all my guns and my, my shells and everything. I said, okay. So he says, but what should I do with my bombs? Oh, so I said, I said, what do you, what, do you have bombs in there? He says, yeah, I have some bombs in here too. So, so now I look at the emergency service guys and I say, uh, what should I tell them to do? They said, okay. They, they discuss it with their boss and they said, all right, tell him to leave the, the bombs un unattended, come to the door, surrender. And then once we clear him out of the apartment uh, and the boyfriend out of the apartment, you know, the sister's boyfriend out of the apartment, we will... Um, send the bomb squad in to uh, you know, see what they have. So that's what we did. Uh, and um, we take them down, we escort them to the 7-5 precinct. I was able to establish a good rapport with him. 
he wanted me to go to the seven five with him and I accompany him in and uh I hand him over to Detective Dan Powers and Detective Tom R, who are now investigating the shooting of the sister as a as a crime because we didn't know he was a zodiac guy. Right. So he's he writes out a uh, a confession to uh Danny Powers and Tommy Ma for shooting his sister. And uh, at the bottom of the page, he does a strange symbol of a cross. So uh, they both knew I was very familiar with the Zodiac case and they brought the confession back out to me at the scene because I went back out to uh, number one, get my private car again. And uh, to, you didn't want to leave that to sell hanging out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was stolen to sell. Like it's stolen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then uh, I wanted to see how they made out with the bombs, you know. So they bring out the confession to me and they show it to me. And as soon as I uh, read the confession, I recognized uh, the handwriting from the letters that I've been studying for the last four years. And I said, I said to them, I said, as soon as I'm standing here, this is a Zodiac shooter. And then it all starts making sense. Uh, the guns that he had were all zip guns. They were homemade devices. Wow. So he would go to the, uh, the local plumbing store, buy pipe and then fabricate a gun. That's why he knew there was no lands of grooves. It wasn't processed to, to be uh, drilled right, that way. Right. Uh, so um, we get back to the station house. And uh, although I knew we had him because of the handwriting, it was just the beginning of a lot of work because I had to corroborate. So uh, one of the crime scenes, he had uh, left a note and they recovered uh, one dump print from uh, the crime scene in Central Park. And um, I said, Tommy Moore, I said, Tommy, take his fingerprints run it down to Ronnie Alonges. He was the uh, most dedicated uh, forensic uh, detective, uh, worked with it steadily. Uh, give him to Ronnie and see what Ronnie says. So Tommy Ma does that. Then we also ship the ballistics, all the guns, gun parts, ammo and everything down to uh, the ballistics unit. They, uh, did he uh, actually have bombs in there too? Yeah, he had two, uh, two explosive devices, pipe bombs, and one smoke bomb. He was going to graduate from being a serial killer to being a serial bomber. Wow. Uh, he had actually uh, he had actually planned on blowing up a movie station, uh, a, a movie house uh, in New York City. Wow. So, uh, you know, we prevented uh, a lot more bloodshed that day. So uh, I got a phone call from uh, Tommy down at the 1PP and uh, Ronnie Lodge just matched the fingerprint to the Central Park letter. So now we, you know, I mean, we really know we had him. You got him. And, and then the subsequent uh, ballistics reports they were able to, uh, ballistic examination, they were able to uh, identify the zip guns as being the guns that shot the uh, Zodiac victims. And then even though DNA was, this was 1996, and uh, even though DNA was still relatively new, he had licked uh, the, one of the envelopes that he smelled at 60 minutes, and we were able to match eventually the DNA wow. uh, from, from the letter. And then he, at about an eight-hour interrogation, he did give up the... Um, the, the, the crimes, you know, he started, uh, he was very religious. He had a St. James Bible. Uh, all he wanted to talk about was religion uh, until finally, you know, uh, we were able to get him to start talking about the shootings. What, what rank were you at this point? A sergeant. You were a sergeant, okay. Yeah, yeah. And where, where were you assigned? Uh, I was just recently assigned to the Brooklyn North Homicide Squad. Oh, okay. And, and luckily for me, uh, he was living in a 7-5 and, um, I was very familiar with all the detectives and, and, and the location, and uh, it all worked out well. Uh, so, well, you know, it's something that obviously the detectives liked you too, because with a big case like that, 
they would probably be like, oh, don't get him involved, you know, but they liked you and they brought oh, you. Oh, no, they did. You know? I had such a rapport with them, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I can say it now because I'm retired. I was more a detective than a chief uh, or, or a boss, you know what I'm saying? I was, yeah, you were, I was into you were a cop that made boss. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A detective, so. you know, anti-crime cop, you know, then a detective. Anti-crime cop, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's like, uh, as pe people don't totally understand, the, usually the higher you go up in rank of the police department, the more administrative your job becomes, right? It just becomes... It's true, but uh, I was, uh, there's another uh, edge to that sword. And I tell this to young guys, I say, you know, becoming a boss now gives you the opportunity as the boss to make decisions and to involve yourself in what you want to involve yourself in. Right. You know, if you're a detective and the boss tells you, go canvas this building or go work on this case and it's not the case you want to work on you know the the, the high priority case now you're the boss you, you determine where you're going to be and right. what you're going to do right. so uh i took advantage of that you know and uh, and then i made lieutenant uh in the seven five squad you were the, the you were the commanding officer of the seven five squad yeah for a while for about four or five years and uh then i How was at one point the number one homicide precinct in the city right in 1993, the first year uh, I was assigned there, I was, I was assigned there January 3rd, 1993. 129 homicides in five square miles. Wow. On top of that, we had four to 500 non-fatal shootings. It was crime scene to crime scene to crime scene. That's what it was, you know. Like a bloodbath, uh, that place, right? It was unbelievable, yeah. I, I, now I, heard something, I read something once in the newspapers that said... Um, on the wall of the uh, interrogation room in the seven five, it said, "If you know someone who killed someone, let us know so you can go." <laughs> I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah, and then we also we also had a, a, a dogicide chart. You know, all these commands had homicide charts. Yeah, to keep the number. We had dogicides. There were so many dogs getting shot. You know, oh, because of, uh, the drug dealers and you know, uh, it was fascinating times. But um, then nine eleven happened, and uh, I was assigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force as a lieutenant, and uh, that was a fascinating transition. Tell us you know, about tell us about that a little bit. I don't think most yeah, people know much. I can't talk too much about it because of the classification issues. But you know, in general, um, we're thrown into this nightmare. Uh, you know, this tragedy that happened in nine on nine eleven, and uh, you know, we all knew people that were killed. We all knew people that were you know affected by it uh, terribly. And uh, a lot of motion going on, but I get assigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Now I'm, I'm learning, you know, basically new laws, terrorism laws that Congress has given the FBI, uh, new techniques. Um, and I went from five square miles in New York City to the whole planet, the whole world of being my jurisdiction. And you have to learn uh, what's motivating these guys. Why did they do this? You know, and then you start learning about the religions and. I mean, I know more about Islam at the time you know, than I probably did about my own religion uh, uh, and uh, geography, learning and uh, uh, language. I wish I learned more, but um, history, it, it was an unbelievable experience. And, uh, you know, it's still it's still active today. You know, it's still going on today. Uh, right. I follow it closely in the media. Uh, you know, right now, Africa's getting hit hard and it's still the Middle East uh, is getting hit hard. Uh, we have to be vigilant that uh, we don't get hit again here, you know. Well, I think isn't there a big uh, uh, hotbed of terrorist activity, Somalia? Isn't yes. There? Yeah. 
Al Shabaab. Right. It's an offshoot of uh, Al Qaeda, and uh, they're very violent. And but that's it's really expanding into uh, ISIS has been uh, moved out of like Syria and uh, parts of the Middle East, and they're expanding greatly in Africa, and it's it's going towards Western Africa. There was a couple incidents this week in uh, Niger and Nigeria, you know, uh, where hundreds of people are kidnapped and you know dozens are killed and it's unbelievable uh how but, how would you say um new york city detectives are at in investigating uh terrorism you know it's funny uh, it's, it's it's funny you ask that it's, it's a really good question so new york detectives are new york detectives uh you know highly experienced and trained and, and dedicated uh fbi agents they tend to be a little bit more educated uh, than the, 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 you know, the regular NYB detective, although a lot of detectives have college degrees and so forth. But a lot of the agents have advanced degrees and, and so forth. It's a tremendous, it's a tremendous compliment. Uh, uh, we complement each other very well. And the FBI guys in the JTTF love the NYPD guys. And the NYPD guys learn so much because we rely on the FBI guys, you know, uh, for their, their knowledge, number one, their experience, which is different than ours, number two, and plus the processes and the systems and all that, you know, and they really went out of their way to help us, uh, you know, l learn all that. So it was a really a good marriage and it still is a good marriage. I know I keep in touch with both FBI people and JTF people now. But the uh, feds all, the feds also have all the best toys too, right? Yeah. The Congress really gives them, you know, tremendous amounts of money. Right. And uh, tremendous authorities, uh, you know, legal uh, authorities. And uh, yeah, they're, 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 they are incredibly well advanced. You know, all the, the, the modern technology they're up on. Um, you know, like the first time I ever heard of Twitter, um, it was during the, the Mumbai case, uh, what was going on in, in India. And, right. and uh, one of the victims was an American citizen and he was holed up in, in his hotel room trying to stay alive. And he was communicating through Twitter. Now, I never heard of Twitter before, but the FBI, you know, they're, they're, they're computer people. They were all on top of it. And, right. you know, so, so they have, you know, people that are cyber people that are really advanced in cyber technologies. You know, that, so, that Mumbai incident is a terrifying incident because I, I think it was about seven or eight guys that were heavily armed, right? They went to an area that was really crowded and just started sh shooting people, just executing people. And the, the India police were not equipped at all to challenge these guys. You know, they weren't, they didn't have an emergency service like we do. Uh, they basically, I, got, think was, I think it was six hours away. I think the only emergency service people they had was six hours away. Yeah. And they, they basically got the police. there got slaughtered with the civilians, you know? Yes. And these guys went right to a train station, a major train hub, shot that up. Then they went to a, a Habad house, which is a, a Jewish, uh, synagogue type of uh, location. Uh, they they destroyed that place and killed everybody they could there. And then they went to the hotel. And, right. uh, you know, they knew they were dying that day, those those uh, terrorists. Uh, they were they were brainwashed by, you know, people in Pakistan, you know. And um, it was uh, unbelievable the, the, the recordings and the video footage that were that were able to be recovered from all that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, and you know what, something like that could happen. That's, you know, that was my next point was that, you know, I, I think it was always feared that that could come to Times Square yeah. or yeah. an attack like that could come to Times Square. 
And even as elite and great as our emergency service unit is, everyone knows the lay of the land in Times Square. And on a regular day, it's so crowded that it could take them 10 minutes or 15 minutes to get there, right? And at that time, how many people could they kill? Well, we already had an attempt uh, by uh, Al-Qaeda on Times Square, a bomb, car bomb that didn't go I was I was there that night. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So one thing the NYPD did to really uh, help protect the city against terrorism is uh, uh, advance a um, counterterrorism bureau, and the JTTF is part of that counterterrorism bureau, and they beefed up the membership of the JTTF. So before 9-11, I think the number was 11 investigators. Well, at, at, at its height, when I was there, it was 142. I don't know what they have now, uh, you know, um, but, uh, and they also created the Counterterrorism Bureau where they have fixes uh, and uh, mobile units that go around every day, 24 hours a day. And they go to these iconic uh, locations in the city, Times Square, the Empire State Building, Wall Street, you know, all, all these uh, very popular places, Statue of Liberty. They have the harbor, they have aviation. They really beefed it up and, uh, you know, the city's a lot safer for it, but, you know, these guys are adaptable and you, you really have to be careful, you know? Yeah, I think one of the things that you, you, you didn't mention was they have that uh, camera system modeled after London's Ring of Steel, where yes. it's actually almost like a smart camera, where if someone puts a bag down and they leave it, it'll notify uh, the operator, like, look, someone left a, a suitcase or a bag at this location, it's been there for two minutes. And they could go back and ID the person that put it there. I mean, something like that would have been invaluable in Boston. You know, the Zanayev brothers used a backpack to yep. have the, uh, what was that thing, a food processing thing where, where the bomb was Yeah, in. the, um, yeah, the, uh, the smelters or uh, Papa, yeah. I forget what they call it. Yeah, yeah and that's, they, that's what they uh, had put the bomb in, you know. And uh, yeah. you know, those things can... Uh, take place of a hundred men with a camera like that, you know, when you think about it, right? Absolutely. And you know what, from that system that you were talking about with the NYPD, um, I'm very familiar with it because, uh, you know, we've worked a lot of cases where we uh, utilize it. And what really became apparent to me was, you, you know, the subways, when people hop the turnstiles or, or, or pay the fare and all that, there's a lot of cameras uh, in these subways. And they're pretty clear. They're very clear. Right. And and that, that facility was able to plug into the uh, subways. And you could see people as clear as I'm, I'm looking at you right now. Uh, you know, I usually sometimes you got a video is going to be a little grainy or black and white or distant. Uh, so like for investigators, and I, I'm pretty sure most of them know it, but if you get something, uh, you get a crime happen on Avenue A, you can get video on, on Avenue B, Avenue C and Avenue D of the guy walking up to it or running away from it. You know, and it, those uh, captures are just as valuable as the actual crime being uh, video recorded. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so if you have video good enough to identify someone, that's like incredible video. Yeah. Right? Now you put it on social media, you put it on the, yeah. the news. Because you know, you as an investigator, on. probably the most difficult thing is to get someone identified. Yes. Right? yes. How many hours, days, weeks, months that you spend trying to get someone identified? Mm-hmm.